Chapter Nine of Physiology of the Opera by Screechy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Nine. I'm fond of fire and crickets and all that, a lobster salad and champagne and chat. Byron. From this genteel place, the reader must not be surprised if I should convey him to a cellar or a common porterhouse. Connoisseur Number One. Sweet is old wine in bottles, ale in barrels. Byron. The curtain falls, much to the delight of those gentlemen whose sole motive for frequenting the opera is to have an opportunity of what they call chaffing with some fair lady friend whilst repairing thither and returning from thence, as well as during the enchanting moments when the drop displays one of those accommodating landscapes which the audience, at their option, may convert either into the lake of Como or the ruins of Palmyra. If we may trust the assertion of many fair mouths, we must infer that the curtain has fallen, much to the regret of certain young ladies, who declare that they could sit and hear Bossio for ever, a period of time which we have always been taught to regard as very long indeed. But the curtain has fallen, and the gentlemen who have been foolish enough to send bouquets to the prima donna in the morning all seem suddenly to be struck with the bright idea that by giving a few knocks of a cane or a few taps of a gloved hand they can call out that divine woman and by some adroit manoeuvre render themselves distinguishable and obvious to her from out that mass of heads and black coats the persons who occupy the elevated portions of the house who have paid a small price for their admittance like all other persons who pay small prices make large demands for their money and consequently unite with the prima donna's admirers in an attempt to get a last long lingering look at the lady they really do all the applause thundering with their heavy canes and beating their hands together until they resemble small lumps of crude beefsteaks after the requisite amount of delay which is imposed upon the audience to give them an adequate idea of the obligation the prima donna will confer should she see fit to exhibit herself a human head is seen to project from behind the curtain but is drawn back with that kind of jerk which is said to be peculiar to a turtle establishing his right to the homestead exemption this little aglion of the prompter has the desired effect for the gentlemen in the parquet who expect the prima donna to observe them to the entire exclusion of the other five hundred men in white cravats and black coats become perfectly fanatic and the sojourners in paradise threaten to take advantage of their position and empty themselves on the heads of the higher orders of society who happen for the present to be below them the excitement now begins to infuse itself into all present the most apathetic old habitues commence to stretch forth their necks to wriggle in their seats and to manifest other signs of sympathy with the more inflammable portion of the audience at length the tenor comes forward from the side of the curtain with a sickly smile of inexpressible pleasure on his countenance he leads by the hand the prima donna whose downcast eyes and modest demeanour entirely mislead the audience giving them the fullest assurance of her beautiful disposition and wholly contradicting the assertion that she ever stamps her foot at the leader or tears the hair of her maid the brace of singers make one acknowledgment of gratitude immediately after issuing from behind the ruins of palmyra thence proceeding in front of said ruins make another and the moment before their disappearance perpetrate a third 
this is not sufficient for those enamoured ones who think that by some evident mistake the prima donna has not recognised them so the padding of gloves and the tapping of canes is again resorted to which together with the efforts of the upper circles again extracts the tenor and his inamorata together with the drowsy basso the last-named person wears an air of great reluctance at thus being detained on the stage instead of being permitted to go home to his pates and fricassees the three go through the reverential with due regard to time and position and then withdraw leaving the house to contemplate the gaslight and reflect upon the briefness of all human pleasures during all this time the ladies have been standing in an apparently half decided state as to what was ultimately to become of them alternately looking on the stage and picking up hoods and shawls which they immediately let fall again now that their suspense is ended they commence to hood and shawl and many is the gentleman who announces in whispers that he is unspeakably happy in being permitted to place a cloak upon the shoulders that rival alabaster harry brown is unfortunate for miss smith's cousin george has anticipated him having already astutely seized upon a shawl during the calling out which he carefully keeps until the blissful moment arrives for enveloping that lady miss smith thanks cousin george as she always calls him with such a sweet smile that harry brown immediately becomes occupied in a protracted search after his hat muttering to himself hang these cousins the audience go out of the boxes together with the going out of the gas and masses of people stand crowded together in the lobbies while the house is slowly emptying itself the fast men have collected about in front of the different box doors from which the ladies are issuing and are examining the relative claims to beauty which the fair observed ones merit or as they term it are getting their points they are heard to make their comparisons upon the singers too with all the assurance of the old habitues telling about salvi's falsetto and bettini's chest voice with a wondrous deal of volubility where the crowds from the upper tiers unite with those of the lower one loud-voiced critic who has just made his descent is heard to observe to a friend that though salvi is an old cock he is nevertheless a remarkably sound egg but why such a peculiarly gallinaceous reference is made to that distinguished tenor we must unhesitatingly confess ignorance after the confusion attendant on the coming and going of carriages cabs and divers other vehicles the fatigued audience are at length set in motion toward their respective dwellings again poor harry brown is a fit subject for our commiseration the ill-fated young man is placed by the side of miss smith's mother a rather antique lady cousin george somehow or other has managed to place himself beside miss smith the carriage passes a lamp-post and though harry brown does observe cousin george's left hand the disappearance of the right is something for which he cannot at all account except upon the laws of proximity which pertain to cousinship while the carriage proceeds homeward the party does not converse as freely as they did a short time before under the exhilaration arising from the gas light and gossip harry brown finds the ride a bore mrs smith is so deaf and still has her ideas of public amusement confined to the times when mr kemble mr cooper and mr cook performed in the legitimate drama to crowded houses cousin george's position is such a happy one that conversation is to him a thing superfluous those whose means authorize them and very often those whose means do not authorize them go home to a nice supper 
some delicate partridges, cold capon, or deviled turkey, and a bottle or two of champagne. Under the influences of the warm room and the viands, not to mention that warmy, champagny, old particular brandy-punchy feeling, induced by the popping cork, the events of the whole evening are reviewed in a quite thorough manner, though without much attention to a lucidus ordo. Let us follow the Smiths home, and see what is their mode of terminating the evening. Scarcely have they settled themselves at table before a glass of champagne is administered all around, and a very severe criticism of Basio is commenced by Cousin George, who says in a very opinionated way that he likes her pretty well, but prefers either Truffi or Stefanoni. Miss Smith immediately espouses the cause of the injured Basio, whom she has often declared she could listen to for ever, and calls on Harry Brown to come to the rescue of the Cantatrice's reputation. Harry, who has been sadly silent ever since the miraculous disappearance of Cousin George's right hand in the carriage, at once becomes a violent Bossioite, and maintains the vocal abilities of that prima donna against the whole world. Whereupon Miss Smith, with one of the most approving of smiles, exclaims, "'Thank you, Mr. Brown. I always knew you were a gentleman of taste. There, there, let me shake hands with you.' And as Miss Smith utters the last words, she extends such a ridiculously little hand across the table that it seems almost a misnomer to apply that appellation to it. Mr. Brown seizes the proffered member, and gives it as hearty a pressure as the publicity of the occasion will permit. From the moment that he touches the magical little hand, Cousin George is eclipsed. Harry's knowledge of operas, music and singers, becomes at once astonishingly enlarged, and he speaks on operatic subjects like one having authority to do so. Fortunately for Cousin George, Miss Smith's brother Charles enters, his clothes strongly redolent of Havana's, he having just returned from his club. His sister forbids him to come so near her, alleging as a ground for such a prohibition that those horrid cigars are so offensive to her. Her brother moves good-naturally to the other side of the table, having first applied his finger to his sister's cheek in a playful way, which has a powerful effect upon poor Harry, causing him to feel exceedingly as if he should like to do the same thing himself. The sister begins to assure her brother of the inestimable amount of pleasure he has lost by loitering at the horrid club, instead of accompanying her to the delicious opera. The reply is that the club has voted Bossio a bore, and that consequently he cannot think of wasting his valuable time by going to hear her. The sister then makes some very severe remarks upon clubs in the abstract, but is interrupted by her brother's inquiring if she does not want to take a share in the great stakes which the club is endeavouring to raise, in order to pit Tom Hyler against Harry Broom, the English champion. The sister pretends to be so provoked at the raillery of her brother, that she smiles in a way that makes her look doubly pretty, calls him a horrid creature, then turns to Harry Brown and indulges in some rather pointed observations relative to divers of the good people who were among the audience at the opera. Mrs. Smith, who has up to this moment been very laudably occupied in seeing that the young people get a due proportion of the well-selected viands, now comes in for a part of the conversation. She, good lady, knows the fathers and grandfathers, mothers and grandmothers, of the present generation, and can tell just what amount of homage each of the dashing families of the city have a right to lay claim to. She declares that Mrs. Sims has no right to assume the importance that she does, that though her father was a very respectable man, 
Still, when she was a girl, the family lived in a very obscure part of the town, and were wholly unknown among our first people. Miss Smith, however, who is very much afraid that her mother is going to indulge in too minute and wearisome an investigation of genealogies, conducts the conversation to subjects which she supposes to be more interesting to the rest of the party. She objects to the want of taste, displayed by those awful-looking Mrs. Rogers, who deck themselves out like young girls, when everybody knows they have been in society for the last fifteen years, that their mother has made herself notorious, as well as ridiculous, by angling for every young man of desirable means in the city. Miss Smith likewise expresses her wonder, when that stupid Lieutenant Jones will marry Miss Sims. She declares that she is tired of seeing the two together, that one cannot go into any public place, but the first persons who meet the eye are Jones and Miss Sims, that if the weather is fair and you walk out, there are the loving couple in the street. Go to Newport, there they are. Go to the opera, there they are. If they can find means to run incessantly to parties and balls, watering places and operas, why cannot they get married? Miss Smith concludes her observations on the overfond lovers by emphasizing the words, so stupid, is it not, at the same time giving them both an affirmative and interrogative character. Harry Brown responds that it might be excessively uninteresting to be always thus placed in proximity to Miss Sims, but that there are other young ladies of his acquaintance with whom such extreme intimacy would be anything but stupid. To this ambiguous use of the word stupid, Miss Smith makes no reply, but merely looks at Mr. Brown, as if she had not the slightest idea whether that very personal allusion to herself had been made by that gentleman. Miss Smith again indulges in reflections on society with a great deal of freedom and pointedness of expression, which much amuses Cousin George, who laughs approvingly at what he terms the sharpness of his relative. Brother Charles remains wholly unattentive to a kind of conversation which his fair sister so often takes part in, and is absorbed in estimating, on the back of a visiting card, the probability of his winning his bet on the late election. Harry Brown, after his complimentary effort, sinks into a state of silence, induced by the loquacity of Miss Smith, the hilarity of Cousin George, and the negligence of Brother Charles. Alas for Harry! He is considering the likelihood that such a censorious young lady can have a kind heart, or would make a good wife. At this moment, Mr. Smith, Sr., walks into the dining-room. A worthy, respectable, and well-to-do man is Mr. Smith, the elder. He pays his taxes, and he loves his children, and who can do more? Miss Smith immediately rises from the table, puts up her dear little mouth to her papa to be kissed. The tender parent goes through the osculatory process in such an affectionate manner that Harry Brown is strongly impressed with the idea that the old gentleman would make a trump of a father-in-law, and he begins to suspect that Miss Smith's heart is not so bad after all. The elderly Smith takes his seat, having first shaken Harry by the hand in a friendly, familiar way that indicates a very good opinion of that worthy young person. The conversation again reverts to operatics, but Harry seems to have forgotten all his late familiarity with such subjects, and becomes suddenly very conversant with railroads, canals, and stocks, and launches out into an earnest conversation with Mr. Smith on those interesting topics. But everything must have an end, so about midnight Mr. Brown walks home through a foot of snow, because his mind is too much occupied with the thoughts of Miss Smith and her cousin George to allow him to think of calling a cab. 
let us now see what becomes of those gentlemen who have been sitting in the parquet giving the opera their most anxious attention at all such times as either the prima donna is on stage or any aria is sung but who have been giving quite unmistakable signs of ennui and weariness during the recitatives and choruses if we have narrowly observed the movements of this portion of the audience we will have remarked that during the performance of the last act they have from time to time cast hurried glances towards the avenues of egress and contorted their countenances in a way which would indicate that their olfactories were greeted by certain savoury odours imperceptible to everybody but the possessors of the said olfactories these gentlemen immediately after leaving the opera may be seen to walk along the street in companies of three or four with a hurried step until their progress is arrested by a view of the divers green blue pink or crimson coloured lamps holding a very conspicuous position over the doors of some houses of very suggestive exterior or before some suspicious hiatus on the pavement where those horrid monsters who figure in christmas pantomimes might easily be imagined to dwell these lamps seem to be possessed of a most incredible power of human attraction for no sooner does their light fall upon the vision of the nocturnal wayfarer than he is drawn within the portals over which they are established upon mounting the steps into these houses or descending into these subterranean regions the inquirer will discover a long brilliantly illuminated gaudily papered chamber whose walls are ornamented with numerous overgrown mirrors and french-coloured prints representing young ladies in short dresses standing in every possible posture except that usually assumed by ladies of our acquaintance along one side of this apartment at some distance of about three and a half feet from the wall extends a marble slab placed in a horizontal position and elevated three feet from the floor forming a species of enclosure within this enclosure a number of men habited to the waist in white garments apparently of a nameless order of priesthood are going through some inexplicable mystic rites repeatedly seizing up various large glass bottles containing transparent or opaque liquids and carrying them to different parts of this marble slab at the request of various persons who seem to be the worshippers in this temple at one end of the enclosure a solitary man of a dark and sombre hue evidently a person held more sacred than the other priests is seen alternately to hammer portions of some hard matter resembling stone in appearance and then split them by the magical application of a small piece of blunt iron he conducts this ceremony with the greatest solemnity occasionally pronouncing these incantatory words a plate or shell sa in a seemingly interrogative manner the worshippers at these shrines are some of the same young gentlemen whom we have seen standing back in the opera boxes by the doors making fast remarks on all that was passing around them or sitting in the parquet endeavouring to annihilate the prima donna by the attractiveness of their appearance others of the same class of persons merely pass through this chamber having first said in a low tone to the most potential of the priests four dozen broiled ale for one and brandy and water for three the priest immediately repeats these words so fraught with significance in a loud voice which resounds to the whole chamber an invisible priest at some distance from the first again repeats them and thus the mysterious sound is passed from one unseen priest to another until it ceases to be heard in the distance nothing more is seen of the last described devotees for some time after their leaving the mysterious apartment but about midnight a confused sound of human voices is heard to issue from another mysterious chamber 
some of those voices express a dogged determination on the part of their proprietors to remain shut up within the present confines until the matutinal hours other voices assure a universal confidence in the powers of a certain bobtail mare while one teaches in the italian language the secret of living happily footnote il segreto per esser felici End of footnote. at between two and three o'clock in the morning several of our operators are seen to emerge from the aforesaid houses and subterranean abodes in a very musical as well as affectionate frame of mind one gentleman totally regardless of the lateness of the hour after manifesting a strong desire to embrace a large party of his friends kindly invites them home to take tea with him another walks homeward expressing his notions on the secret of living happily in a cantatory way a third is assisted into a cab by his associates with directions to the driver to set him down at his lodgings arrived there he is put to bed when he dreams that he is falling down five hundred precipices that afterwards a huge man is on the point of cutting off his head but a very prima donna like looking lady comes in and intercedes for him and she thus saves his life that he is just going to be married to the prima donna like looking lady when his pleasure is interrupted by the sound of ten thousand horns each one four times as large as that he saw the tyrant have in the opera whereupon he awakes and discovers that there is a cry of fire and the firemen are making almost as much noise as the orchestra did when it was doing the crashing passages in the morning the chambermaid wonders why mr higgins rings for water when she recollects filling the ewer full the previous night next day mr higgins examines his operatic accounts and finds them to stand thus to one pair of kid gloves one dollar to opera ticket secured seat one dollar fifty to supper three dollars to cab hire one dollar total six dollars fifty at that moment his landlady sends in the bill for lodging which by the by she always seems to do when he is in one of his repentant moods and mr higgins expresses a kind wish that all italians were in a climate somewhat warmer than that of the south of europe the smiths do not feel any inconvenience physical or pecuniary from their visit to the opera and petite super afterwards when one has money says mrs smith in a very oracular tone what is the use of it except to let people know that one has got it immediately after this expression of her sentiments in regard to filthy lucre mrs smith tells the servant not to give a shilling to the whimpering little boy who's been sweeping the snow off the pavement that sixpence is enough and more than enough for him and that it is wrong to encourage such exorbitance now that mr higgins should feel thirsty in the morning or that mrs smith should regret to part with the sixpence concerns not us we have not been writing to correct public morals but only to amuse the readers of the physiology of the opera end of chapter nine and end of physiology of the opera by john h swaby a k a screechy